welcome back to the Value Adds Value podcast with Kyle Krieger and Wilkie Law, where we're sharing inspiring stories of educators just like yourself, helping you to develop your craft and sharpen your tools to become the teacher your students deserve. This is the Value Adds Value podcast. Let's jump into this next episode. What is going on, everybody? Welcome back to Value as Value. My name is Kyle Creeker, and I'm joined by my guy, Will Give You Law the Third. Will, what's good? Good morning, good morning, man. Um, kind of in, in a space, you know, um, with everything going on out your way. And plus, yesterday, finding out that um, Chadwick Bosman uh, passed away, um, you know, I, I, it, it just kind of, you know, not personally, don't know the guy, you know, never met him. But it's amazing how we can feel those feelings from people who we feel like have impacted or have been a part of our life story, you know, and him right. bringing the Black Panther character to life. Um, it, it's, it's something, like I say again, in our lifetime to see a movie of that caliber do that well and with him as a starring role. <clears throat> and now knowing that, you know, that's all we have left is that those memories and the legacy that he left behind. You know, in fact, that he's right around right around my age. You know, yeah, so a little little younger than a, you, a little, a little bit younger than me. So it just kind of makes um, you know, it had me in a space. Um, yeah. But in my in my morning reflection, I just kind of really dug real deep and started really just kind of ironing out what were those issues, what were those reasons that I was feeling the way I was feeling. And so feel really good now. Yeah, feel yeah, lighter, yeah. but. <clears throat> so and and the crazy thing about that was just that no, like no one knew. Right, right. Nope. And he had been filming, been filming movies, doing everything while he yeah. was going through chemotherapy, which again speaks a testament again to what yeah. I know I saw him as. You know, watching that role of Black Panther and watching him in Marshall and watching him in all the movies, like yeah. you saw him as that strong black lead, yeah. and come to find out that that was him in real life. Mm-hmm. You know that he did that in real life. Mm-hmm. So man, you know. Rest in power to chat with Bossman, yeah. man, as we start this episode. So Yeah, yeah. So we are excited to have uh, a guest on this week to the podcast to talk about behavioral supports and all all of those different things because it's we're, we're really trying to get outside of our comfort zone and come to find out that her husband is from right by where I live. So, you know, everybody's got a connection to the Midwest. People just love us. They love the people, even though I'm from Wisconsin, I won't take that, but Lauren Larson, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So we, we, I, I first got connected with you through your session in educators to educators. And I was like, Oh my God, this is amazing. So um, if you want, can you just get started with giving us a little bit of your educational background, how you got into the profession and, and what your job is now? Yeah, of course. So I actually did it a little backwards, I feel like, to what most teachers do. I never wanted to be a teacher. I actually, I feel like I became a teacher on accident, sort of. Um, I always wanted to be a therapist. And so all of my undergraduate degrees and all my coursework was actually in therapy. Um, And so I have 
a lot of years um, where I spent time working in private practice um, ABA therapy, which is applied behavior analysis therapy. And I worked with mostly kids on the spectrum of autism, two to 22 ages, um, worked with some students with some emotional disabilities, some students with anxiety and stuff. But um, that was really my bread and butter for about six years. And uh, sorry, my cat, she just loves to be a part of this. <laughs> but um, yeah, so then I really struggled because I was having to do a lot of kind of like advocacy work and go into schools and help teachers um, with my specific clients. And they were just not having it. They weren't really receptive to um, strategies and supports to help my students. They really weren't meeting their IEPs where they needed to be. And it was really frustrating, but I couldn't control the system and stuff. Um, and so it was kind of one of those where I woke up one day and was like, you know what? I'm going to go be a teacher. If I can't help them and they won't change themselves, then you know what? I'm going to go do it myself. And so I went back to grad school. I got my master's in education and um, became a teacher. And so then I went and started an autism program at a local elementary school for um, my school district and got it pretty much from the ground up started. And um, then it did really well. And it was in a really low SES, so a very high poverty area and stuff. Um, and then they wanted us to kind of switch gears a little bit. And then we moved over to a different school and started their autism program as well. So I technically, in my years of teaching, have taught every grade K-6 um, as a special ed self-contained teacher. And um, then this year, I just switched over to they opened a new role and it is what is called an SEL specialist. So a social emotional learning specialist, which really I feel like is kind of like a behavior interventionist, um, a little more proactive and stuff, but yeah, so that is my new role this year. So I'm super excited. <laughs> awesome. Well, and so was the SEL specialist, was that brought about because of uh, the need, them knowing that kids are gonna need that need for uh, um, you know, after, you know, during, for COVID? You know, actually, everything? I think it was in the works prior to COVID. And I think with COVID that really pushed it through and stuff. Um, mm -hmm. So our, it's really cool because typically a position like this um, is really hard to fund, especially in a state like Arizona, where education is just absolutely atrocious. To be honest, public education is horrible here. There's very limited funding in Arizona. And so you don't see a lot of um, jobs like this ever. And um, it's something I've been wanting to do for a while. There's just never a, an option for it and stuff. And so my district, um, put out one of these at every school. So all the elementary schools are sharing. So like I'll be at, uh, I am at two elementary schools, 50-50, but all the middle school and the high schools got a, a 1.0. So a person who's there 24 seven, um, wow. which is huge that there's no other, I, to my knowledge in Arizona, at least there's no other district doing anything like that. So I think they're starting to see that for behavior purposes, it needs to be proactive. We need to be addressing these needs and um, it's a really big deal. So it's exciting to be kind of someone founding now this as well. Right. And that whole restorative practice piece, I think a lot of people forget that the biggest part of that restorative practice piece is what you do before the, before the antecedent, yes. you know, the things you put in place before all those things start taking place. And that's what helps curbs or gives students those necessary coping skills to be mm -hmm. able to, uh, you know, accommodate the challenges that they face. So that's awesome. Big shout out to Arizona for that. <laughs> I, mean, I can imagine, I mean, I'm in Texas and 
you know, our district is, you know, we're, you know, 70,000 students uh, in our district alone, and we're not even the largest ISD, you know, so I can imagine, I know our counselors are work, you know, feverishly trying to meet those needs, but I can imagine having someone, this is just your job and your focus is to do this, the connections that you could bring about and make with students to help them a lot better, I think would be, I mean, I think it's amazing. Yeah, it definitely is. And that's one thing that here in Arizona, we don't have. I mean, we are staff members for stuff like that, for counselors, social workers. Like I've never worked in a school where we've had a counselor or a social worker. Um, some of our nurses aren't even full-time. I mean, luckily ours is, but I mean, it's the um, there's just not positions like stuff like that. And if like at the high school level, if it is a counselor in Arizona, it's their caseloads one in like 500, one in 400. So it's, um, so a position like this is going to be very, I feel like a, a big change for mm -hmm. what we've normally been accustomed to. So a question we always like to ask everyone, because we, we started this whole podcast and this whole journey, the two of us, when we started working together, trying to be the teacher that kids deserve. So when we say that phrase, like the teacher kids deserve, what comes to mind for you? You know, I feel like one of the things that you always hear about in teaching is why teachers became teachers. Like, what was their why? And I think a big part of that, um, especially, I feel like because I, I started differently and I got to see it from a different lens, I feel like first, is I feel like kids need to think that they're the teacher's why. Like, even if they're not, but I feel like every teacher needs to make every kid feel like they are the reason they come to work every day. They are their why. And typically, sometimes in education, you don't see that. Like, I feel like a lot of times, too, the hard kids, the challenging kids, um, the kids sometimes with disabilities, um, those are the kids who, who probably need that love and that um, connection more than anyone. And they're the ones who don't get it. And they're the ones who feel kind of ostracized or they're the ones who... Um, don't feel like they belong or have like a connectiveness to school. And so I feel like that needs to be the big push. Like that needs to be the focus. Like teachers need to make kids feel like, like school's a safe place. Like they are loved, they are cared for, and they are the reason that teacher shows up to work every day. Yeah, that's, that's huge. Uh, I, and I, I, I know I tell my students, you're the reason that I wake up. You know, I come here for you. I come here to see you. I come here to to help empower you. And something Kyle and I have been talking about recently is that a lot of teachers we a lot of teachers try to teach and want to build a relationship for that kid for that year. Mm -hmm. And 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 the shift that we've been talking about is we really want to be a part of that kid's life. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, he and I both have gotten emails and messages from former students. You know, mine most recently was six years ago, uh, a student who graduated this year and, you know, who was telling me about the impact that, you know, he and I both had as teachers for them and where they're going right now and wanted to make sure we were still a part of their life. You know, when I mentioned about, you know, she's an entrepreneur and all these things before college. And I was like, hey, you know, what would you think about mentoring my daughter who's entering high school? And she jumped on, on the opportunity, absolutely, 100%, you know. And so kind of that, that lifelong entanglement of teachers and students to make sure that I'm not teaching you just to get you out of my class. Mm -hmm. I'm teaching you to be a part of your life so that, you know, when it's all said and done, you'll still have a Miss Larson story 
that that you'll be able to tell and and reflect upon that's positive and that made a difference in your life. Definitely. And I feel like that sadly sometimes is not the case. And I feel like that sometimes where um, maybe it's a little different. I've always been blessed to teach in special ed self-contained. So sometimes we have our kids for two to four years at a time. So we really do like have those kids. We see those milestones. We, I mean, we have a relationship with that family where we are their second family sometimes and whatnot. Um, but Gen Ed is a little different where you guys lose your kids after year to year and stuff. And you have so many kids sometimes where our class sizes are so small. So I can, I feel like sometimes that is, um, it's such a sad thing that that is the case where those lifelong connections, those, um, especially I feel like with our challenging kids or our kids who are more quiet and introverted, um, who just don't, um, have that connection. And sometimes I, there's a, something we do at one of my schools, usually always at the beginning of the year. And, um, they put all the kids' names or faces up and stuff. And they ask teachers to go and like put a tally or like a star next to those kids if like they know them or like two stars if they can pretty much tell you their life story and stuff like that. And it's really heartbreaking to see some kids in fourth, fifth, sixth grade who still have very minimal things by their name. And you wonder like, why? How did that happen? How have you gone four or five years and teachers are not, I mean, these teachers aren't turnover teachers. Like we've had teachers in our building for five, six years who should know these kids. And it's the lack of connection. It's the lack of that, that deep connection and stuff, which is just so heartbreaking to me. You know, and, and I think I had a question down below, or maybe it was one that I was thinking of, but in, in the work that we've done in some of the presentations, we've looked at the Gallup student poll, which they do every single year. And by, and, and to your point talking about how these kids have not had a real connection, like one in four high school students that have been surveyed, and this is like hundreds of thousands of kids, say that there is a caring adult at their school, that there's someone wow. that they can they can go to. And it's only like one in three that says, my teachers care about me. So, and and I do feel like kids get it more in the elementary grades. There is more mm-hmm. of that that kind of family feel. So why do you think it is that that it gets lost as they get to the older grades that that con- that connection that that relationship building piece you know i'm not going to lie i don't even know if it gets lost in the older grades i sometimes think it just gets lost as the demands of education get more i feel like intense where um state testing is huge. Like people are having to meet these standards. People are having to meet these criteria and taking time to do those community circles, to build those relationships, to develop that community is seen as taking time out of their academics. Like it's seen as, as almost a detriment to like, we have to meet these certain criteria. And if we don't, then all these negative repercussions. I mean, state get, states get funding based off of their test scores and stuff. So they don't get funding based off of the amount of relationships they have with their kids. So I feel like it's just a shift that it, it's never going to be broken until we start understanding that we need to prioritize relationships. We need to prioritize connections and it, academics comes second. Sometimes it's all that EQ to IQ stuff. Like we have to fill their cups. We have to love them. We have to, they have to want to be at school. I mean, there's so much research out there that says, um, if kids have these positive relationships, then I mean, their attendance is higher, their grades are higher, their self-esteem is higher. I mean, they say something along the lines of, I think it was like a study at like Cambridge or Stanford who was like, if you 
develop these relationships and have the, these kids feeling this way by the age of like 10, 11, they literally see that longitudinally in high school, like connectedness to their school, connectedness to their community, their education. Um, they want to be there. And that speaks wonders. So, I mean, it really starts foundationally, I feel like young and hopefully mm-hmm. then transforms and goes further. And that is the key. I mean, because if, I mean, with anything, whenever you're learning anything, that's the key is to start early. Mm-hmm. The earlier you start, the more ingrained it becomes. It becomes like a part of an engrafted part of who they are. And I think such a big disconnection that we have with producing lifelong learners is that lack of connection. Is that, mm-hmm. it, it, you know, and I see it, you know, in our state, we start state testing in third grade. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you can go and visit the kinder classroom, which I used to take my sixth grade GT students to go over to the kindergarten and first grade classrooms on the 100th day of school. And you can walk into those classrooms and it's just like an explosion of energy <coughs> learning. Second grade, the same thing. You know, and by the time third grade happens, it's like these kids almost like, it's like just staunched. Mm-hmm. And by the time we see them in sixth grade, you know, with me, I'm trying to reinvigorate, trying to reignite this fire that really should have never gone out. You know, it's easier to maintain a fire than it is to, to build one again from scratch. Of course. And a lot of times I feel like when you get in those upper levels, we're trying to rebuild those relationships <laughs> that have been so battered, you know, from teachers feeling the pressure of, mm-hmm. I have to make sure that you're here. I have to make sure my students and not just, I got to make sure I know you. Mm-hmm. Forget what a state test says. I got to know you because if I know you, then I know the state test is that that's a byproduct of our relationship because I'm not going to let you sit in here and fail. I'm not going to sit here and let you not be successful. So a byproduct is all the content that you get. But like you said, that EQ to IQ, I got to get that EQ first, first. Yeah, I, like I mean, that. that is, I feel like that is, when you even look at, I mean, and it's, it's like I said, it's a little different. I came out of behavior therapy for many years before I became a teacher. And that is foundational in behavior therapy is um, building that relationship, building that rapport, having that foundation so that you have success. And I mean, that's across the board, like that's foundational and stuff. So for that stuff to not be seen and thought of the same way in education is, is truly a disservice. I feel like it's, it's a disservice to our kids. It's a disservice to our profession. It's, um, it's just something that is really, I feel like if there's so much research out there saying that we need to be doing stuff like this, I just can't wrap my head around the fact that it's not a priority. You know, and, and for me that being an eighth grade teacher, like my biggest hurdle is working with students who are obsessed with the checklist of what they need to do to achieve this particular grade and to do whatever it is to get a certain score on a test. But I do have a question because I have, you know, young, young nieces and nephews, and now they're kind of getting towards that 4k stage. But Wilkie and I kind of off camera, have been talking about this, like, now they're introducing 3k mm-hmm. and 4k, you know, and all these things. And I'm not an elementary teacher. I don't have a primary kind of background, but what do you think of the curriculum and the way they're teaching these kids in, in the, especially in the lower grades? Cause I feel like I had like the number one thing when I was in elementary school was to have fun and like 
to be a part of that. And now it seems like there's, they're learning more and more at an earlier and earlier age. I mean, I personally am completely against it. I feel like we look at other models of education across the world, um, especially I feel like some of the Northern European ones who focus so much on play and um, relationships and shorter days or longer recesses or multiple recesses. I mean, I we just here in Arizona recently in like the last few years have got a second recess, which um, I I just, it's crazy to me that play and things that foundationally build skills, um, coping skills, communication skills, social skills, things like recess, things like play are being taken away or taken or shortened or out of the picture and stuff and pushed for this education side of it, where we have 90 minute blocks of math or 60 minute blocks of math. When, if you think about how long a kid even learns for, they, it's like a certain number of times their age, which doesn't equate to 60 in first or second grade or even kindergarten. And that's what blows my mind is so many other education models across the world are, are having much higher successes of education, um, much, I feel like, lower rates of all the stuff that we get from the social side of education where they're not seeing, I feel like, all these really high rates of um, suicide or school shootings and all that stuff where kids feel this connectedness. And I feel like that has to probably be part of their education system and how as a whole it's for the whole child. It's not just for the academics of the child, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We'll, we'll get in here and get it on the, on the, I know you've done a ton of research on the Northern European countries. <laughs> yeah. We'll keep going. We'll keep going. But I, I mean, again, it just blows my mind that we, we talked about it before when we were on with um, someone else, uh, Jenny Mira about mm-hmm. the gap between data and practices. Mm-hmm. What we know is proven versus what we consider to be best, best practices because there's no trend, the data is not being conveyed to the practitioners. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think we may be one of the few professions, you know, if something big happens in a medical world, boom, Doctors are finding out about it in conferences and they're getting this information. They're looking at these journals, they're reading time is time, they're given time to go and do these things. But as educators, it's like data is supporting this. This is what the data says, but we're still basing our best practices off of data that we may have gotten back in 1990. Mm -hmm. There's so much more research that we've learned even about the brain and how the brain functions when it's exposed to different stimuli, you know, as it relates to specific subject areas. We wasn't studying that in the 90s, the way we are now. Technology didn't allow us to. So now we can tell what what fires a kid's synapses when they're looking at uh, this type of image or when they're, you know, faced with this type of stimuli versus we were before when it was just making general assumptions on how kids were engaged. We can actually tell now, scientifically, did that engage that kid's brain? And we're not looking at that. There's a huge gap between there. And I think there has to be something to kind of close that gap to allow teachers that opportunity to study the research and to revamp what best practices really look like in the classroom. Definitely. I feel like one of the big things that, I mean, about closing the gap and it not being closed or even closer and stuff is, I feel like it's just such, 
like there's just not enough, I feel like resources and funding and time for educators to do that. I know personally, I don't know how it is for you guys in your districts, but for us, I mean, yes, we are provided with professional development, but nothing ever along stuff like that. I mean, it's all how to be a better, how to teach your kids have better writing, like how to, how to teach better phonics, how to teach letter sounds. Like there's nothing, there's very, very little about SEL. There's very little about trauma. There's very little about behavior and that's foundational. I mean, that's how, if we get all that good, then academics come and stuff. So it's the, it's, it needs to be provided. Like the, the knowledge is out there. It's just not accessible. I feel like it's not, um, equitable. I mean, we just aren't, I feel like getting stuff like that, which is, it's so heartbreaking. And it's such a, I feel like it's really just a, like I said, it's just such a service because it's out there, like you said, and it can close gaps. And so the better, I guess the big question is, is why, like, I guess, why is it not valued or thought to be valued and stuff? So. And you said it earlier, like the priority, Mm -hmm. you know, when are we going to prioritize education? Understanding that, you know, one of the things we always say is that as teachers in the United States, we make up 1% of the population. And our 1% is really literally responsible for the other 99 So I don't know what bigger priority you need to put on any other profession, but you wouldn't have great doctors if it wasn't for great teachers. Mm-hmm. You know, you wouldn't have great lawyers if it were not for great teachers. You would not have other great teachers if there were not first great teachers. And I'm going to even go back and further and say, a little further and say, it starts with the first teachers that most, most kids have, which are their parents. Mm-hmm. So there needs to be a space where there's a parent educational piece going on almost simultaneously as the kid is growing so that that parent can grow because we understand that that parent is going to be the one in the home providing that first, those first ideals of what learning looks like and how that system works. Definitely. And I feel like also on the flip side too, it needs to be something longitudinally. I think we need to be providing parents with resources and parent training, not just foundationally at the get-go of uh, early intervention, but I mean, I feel like throughout, because I feel like we've seen a shift too, where it used to be parents and teachers and educators had such a great collaboration and um, relationship. And now sometimes I feel like it's very separate where uh, there's a lot of blame or there's a lot of finger pointing and stuff of it's the teacher's fault or it's going on at home and there's not that connectedness. And that's huge. Like that's, I feel like that itself, like we, not only do we need to build relationships and, and have that connection with kids and our students in our classroom, but we need to have that with their families at home because when they leave us, they go home. And I mean, in special ed, it's different because that's something, like I said, we have sometimes those year, two, three, four year long relationships from these families. So we build that. But I mean, for you guys where it's nine months or 10 months, and then it's onto the next set of 30, 40 families, or for you guys, I mean, in middle school and stuff, it might be very drastically different hundreds, but I mean, that's that connecting with families and making them feel like they're empowered to help their own kids at home, to Mm. handle those behaviors, to handle their traumas, to handle their, their needs, their SEL needs. I mean, we need to be filling parents up too and stuff with all these supports and this research and all this stuff of how to help. 100%. 100%. Oh, I was just going to ask, um, you know, Wilkie talks a lot on here about how social emotional learning in a lot of educational spaces is considered, as he says, woo-woo. 
<laughs> and it's like, like you said, sort of the, the back burner. So I, I guess my question would be to kind of follow up on this is, you know, what, what are the mis kind of the misinformation about what SEL practices actually are and, and what are the, you know, what does it mean to you really in, in your current job assignment? So what, what, what does SEL mean to you? And then what are some of the kind of misinterpretations or misinformation that people have about it? You know, for me, SEL, I feel like is just something, I mean, if you really look at Castle's website and stuff, it's five foundational points and stuff that really can just be broken down into all forms of things, things like self-management and responsible decision-making and things that we foundationally should be just in general, teaching our students, teaching them how to be successful people, how to be successful students, all of these kind of things, these competencies, I feel like just to help us build like whole children, well-rounded children. I feel like meeting their social needs, meeting their emotional needs, meeting their learning needs. I mean, really just kind of breaking it down to their needs and what we need to be meeting. And I feel like that often is just a misconception within itself of what SEL even is. And people, I think a lot, I mean, it's especially because my role is new, it might just be even worse um, for me because it's new and not a lot of people know about it. And we've never had a job like mine kind of in our school, but everyone thinks it's counseling. Everyone's like, oh, mm -hmm. they have issues. Like go talk to Lauren and stuff like that, which it's not like, and it's, it's so much more than that. It's, it's setting the groundwork for coping skills, for mindfulness, for um, getting kids to understand how to help themselves. Like when I recently went into all my classes and introduced myself and did a whole class presentation on kind of SEL and what my role is this year for the kids and stuff, and really for the teachers as well and whatnot. Mm -hmm. But I was telling the kids, I'm like, I'm here to support you and whatever needs you have to help you then support yourself. Like we need to be not just using me as a crutch. Like you don't need to run to me every time you have an issue. Like we need to be building you up to be successful and independent in helping yourself cope with these big emotions to help yourself identify how best things work for you. If you're struggling, goal setting, um, all these different skills, I feel like that help, like I said, build a whole child, build and meet all those needs, which I don't think people understand that's what SCL is or that's what our job is and stuff. I think, like I said, I think the biggest miss, I guess, interpretation of this role or this idea of SCL is counseling. Like those kids have issues. Those kids have problems. Like they need to talk about it to a counselor. Like, there you go. And kind of pushing it my way or um, kind of being a crisis um, person like, oh, there's an issue. You need to come right now. Where really we need to be setting proactive supports. We need to be doing all this proactively. We need to be building relationships proactively so that kids understand when there is a crisis or there is a challenging issue, what to do to handle that. And that's key. You know, but kids have to know that, but also teachers have to be taught that in the same light because. Mm -hmm. So many times, I think we as teachers, we take our own social emotional needs for granted. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't know how many times I've heard teachers say, oh, my coping mechanism, oh, I'll go drink. <laughs> oh, I'll go have me a glass of wine. I mean, and I'll say, you know, that may be temporal, but it's not sustainable. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. and there's so many temporary solutions out there that you can chase. But what you'll find is that you're chasing those temporary solutions 
And when it doesn't give you your feel, you either increase on that same thing or you find something stronger. Whereas if you find something that's sustainable, that every single time will get you to where you, you know, like my meditation started out to where I would only do it once a day. Then it got to the point where I was meditating twice a day, you know, and, and then reflecting at the end of the day came later. So it's like, once you start a practice that you know will work, the more you do it, the more you can go deeper into it. And if it's not sustainable, it's gonna to start to be a detriment. Because if you do those things too often, now you're not functional when you get back to school, you know, or, you know, as you get up in age and mind, that recovery time <laughs> takes so much longer than when you were 25, 26 years old, you know, it's like, hey, bounce back quick. Now it's like, no, wait, time out. Mm -mm. I'd rather not because I don't have that much time to waste to recover from something that was supposed to help me recover from what I dealt with. Let me find something that's more sustainable. And I think as I, I applaud my district this year, we actually did a, an entire series on social emotional support uh, that they brought to us that we did, teaching us about breathing, teaching us about meditation, teaching us about looking at those cues and how to cope with different things. And that's huge, you know, because again, you can't take students to a place that you've never been. Exactly. I mean, and it's one thing where it's, I feel like it's, it's crazy that as, we're asking children to handle these really big emotions and to handle them correctly and safely. And yet as teachers, sometimes we don't even handle these really big emotions correctly or safely. And I mean, there's so much research in co-regulation, like a really um, dysregulated adult cannot help co-regulate a dysregulated child. So as teachers, we need to be role models. We need to understand our own um, what helps us and our own coping strategies and our own abilities and when to say like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm tapped out. I'm, I'm burnt out. I, I need someone to step in. Um, because at that point, if our fuse is super short, there's no way we're going to help kids whose fuses are shorter. Um, it's just, it's not possible. And that's, I feel like, like you said, like teachers can't, I, it's one thing. Yes. It's great to have a glass of wine, but I, if, if you're, drinking because you can't cope correctly with the stress of your job. I can't imagine what the next day stress is going to do to you and the next month stress and the next year stress. And it's probably why teachers burn out so fast is because of lack of coping strategies, lack of understanding how to handle the stresses of this job. And the kids aren't coming with no trauma. I mean, we're seeing more trauma. We're seeing more behavior. We're seeing more mm -hmm. stuff. And I mean, with COVID now it's a whole different ballpark of collective trauma. So if we can't ourselves manage this stuff, how are we expecting kids or ourselves to help kids? Hey everybody, thanks for checking out this episode of Value Adds Value. We are so thrilled to be on this journey with, with you. We hope your uh, September is going well as we kind of get on the downside towards October. We can't believe how fast this school year is moving. Um, and it's just, been unbelievable and I'm so proud of the teaching team that we have the people that we work with all of our friends who are just doing the absolute best they can during this time so please keep it up and please know that we are with you um and yeah we're so thrilled to have Lauren on we could have talked to Lauren all day but this is part one of a two-part episode uh in which we just kind of talk about the social emotional this part we really just kind of dug into what everybody's going through right now but next time we talk more about the social emotional and 
uh, especially in the sped world. So if you don't follow Lauren, follow her structured sped uh, on Instagram. You can follow us at it's Kyle Krieger at it's Will Law um, and at Value as Value. So please, um, if you love the podcast, if it's if it's speaking to you, if you could drop a like, if you could subscribe, if you could share, we would really appreciate it. And if you need anything, go check us out at theledproject.com. Until later on this week, we'll see you soon.